It's a conspiracy. <laughs> Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 58 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. Pete Hodgson. Hi, from Berkeley. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Chris Risner. Risner. Uh, yep, that's Risner. I should have asked beforehand. See, I've done okay. that for a while, Chuck. I know. It's a, 50, 50, it's a 50-50 chance whether or not someone's going to get it right. <laughs> well, I self-corrected <laughs> one way or the other, right? Exactly. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, so uh, my name is Chris Reisner. I am a senior technical evangelist at Microsoft. And here at Microsoft, I focus on Microsoft Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud platform. Uh, and more specifically, and kind of you know why I'm here today, I really focus more so on mobile connectivity, including iOS, into Microsoft's Azure platform. All right, so I have a very important clarification to make. It's Azure, not Azure, right? Yeah, so no, no Azure, no Azure, or Azure, or however it would be. It's Azure, yes. So Azure. There we go. Official word. <laughs> I guess we can end the show now. That's that's the only yeah, question I have. You know, you know what? To be, to be honest, if if I can just get people to say Azure, I think I've accomplished my goals. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I want to start off with a. Um, a little bit of a, a what's called a definition type thing. So Azure, Azure, Azure. It's a shade of blue. Okay, thank you. All right, that's the show. Perfect. <laughs> I think it's one of those Microsoft things where it's like a word for lots of different things, depending, you know, it's like a word for a bunch of things. So in what is there in the context of mobile? Because I always thought of Azure as being kind of like Microsoft's answer to Amazon EC2, but I, I also am not super educated on uh, Azure. So... Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the you know the biggest and most common questions is, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's a cloud platform. What does that really mean? And a lot of people are familiar with, you know, EC2 or AWS and stuff like that. From a, you know, if you step back and kind of look at it from a big picture, Azure is a, you know, very comprehensive cloud platform. So if you wanted to host something like a Windows server or a Linux virtual machine, you can do that in the IaaS part. There's also platform as a service, which is, you know, if you're doing IaaS, you're still responsible for the operating system and keeping it updated, where when you step up to PaaS or platform as a service, your responsibilities are a little bit less. All you have to do is deploy your code. And, you know, certainly you can use either of these options, you know, as a backend if you're building a mobile application, but that's a lot of work, especially if you're not familiar with building those things. So there's other features of Azure that really tie more closely in with mobile. One of the really big ones is something called Azure Mobile Services, and that's basically a back as a service. So if you're building an iOS app and you need some place where you're going to do your data storage and you want to do push notifications and user authentication and stuff like that, this is something that you can spin up and drop a iOS framework or SDK into your application and then really easily connect into Azure to do those those things that most mobile applications do need, you know, a back-end place to store their data and a way to kind of trigger push notifications. So, you know, really powerful capabilities that you get really super easily. And then in addition to kind of like those those high-level like IaaS and PaaS and backend the service, there's, there, yeah, there's, there's a lot. There's a ton of other services that are part of Azure. So, for example, if you need to do media streaming, there's something in Azure called Media Services, and that has uh, an iOS SDK that lets you stream media down your iOS apps. And there's all these options for doing, you know, DRM and doing ads and stuff like that. 
So tons of different you know services that you can also take advantage of, whether you're building a mobile app or you're building something really quite comprehensive. Uh, so I think there's a lot of there's sometimes people get mixed up with like I so you're you're talking about like you said like IaaS which is infrastructure as a service PaaS or PaaS platform as a service and then backend as a service MBAS if you're a mobile backend as a service so the shorthand I use for remembering those and you can correct me if I'm off here because I think it's a little bit open to interpretation is infrastructure as a service is like the super low level kind of like basically EC2 is a good example of that. And then platform as a service builds on top of that, and that would be something like Heroku as an example. And then backend as a service builds on top of that or is kind of even a higher level than that. And it, that's something like Azure Mobile Services or StackMob or PaaS or like all these, all those other kind of types. Is that, is that roughly correct? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct, except for one case, and that's StackMob because now they, uh, they're pretty much dead. So. Oh yeah, because they got acquired by PayPal, right? Yep, exactly. But other than that, you are you're spot on with your uh, you know comparisons and, and, and analogies. So yes. So I always okay. thought of PaaS or platform as a service, as opposed to Heroku, something more along the lines of like Linode or things like that. Is that incorrect? Is it infrastructure as a service? Yeah. Or do the definitions really even matter? So what we're seeing now, especially you know in the cloud, and you know there's more and more talk about this. It's kind of like a blending of what PaaS and IaaS is. Specifically, though, you know, a, a, a traditional IaaS is something where you, you are getting that VM and you're doing that low-level work on the operating system. Whereas with PaaS, whether it's you know on Amazon or on Google App Engine, something like that, you know that that low level is abstracted, and all you have to do is produce you know some unit of code or you know like whether it's a web application or a, like a worker role type thing, and then hey, here's somewhere where you can deploy it, and it's going to be super scalable. So you know it's just it, it takes a little bit of that low level stuff away and gives you just kind of this unit that all you have to do is make a piece of code that'll run there, and then you can scale it out really easily. Okay. So where does Azure fit in? Uh, so Azure is, you know, it's basically just the name for all of these capabilities as part of Microsoft's platform. So, you know, they're all part of Azure, if you will. So, but really, like, from an, the iOS developer's point of view, I guess that, you know, the stuff that is most interesting for an iOS developer is the, the mobile services stuff, which is the Baz. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so if you were... <laughs> oh man, I thought I had a wicked, I, I thought I had a really good mnemonic of its like pars and paz, like they sound similar. But then I realized that pars isn't a paz, it's a baz or it's an embaz. So I guess I'm. I'm yeah, like, you said embaz, and I was thinking mm, fish. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So specifically for iOS developers, there's really kind of three front-facing features that you'd look at as far as what's in Azure that would be really easy to use, and that's mobile services, which I mentioned is the back of the service. There's also something called notification hubs, which is, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're storing data in Azure or not. You can use notification hubs kind of like, basically as a push notification broker. And both mobile services and notification hubs are work cross-platform. So if, you're, you know, if your company isn't just building iOS apps, you know, there are SDKs for other mobile app platforms as well. And then the last one would be that media services that I mentioned before. And there's, you know, there's other services that you can take advantage of, but those are kind of like the three that are like super easy to kind of get into and start using from an iOS developer perspective. Go ahead. I have a little, um, a little experience with Parse, and it kind of sounds like that's a similar service to your backend as a service. And I'm a little curious to know some of the differences because I think a lot of the people I know have used Parse. I have a little wariness now that it's been bought by Facebook. 
Yeah, and that, that's like, something that you know I heard a lot of when it was bought by Facebook. But so they're they're both back into the service. They're kind of similar offerings. Some of the differences are the technology involved. Uh, so Parse is built on top of Amazon the AWS stuff. And you know, w- one example of a difference is that Parse's data backend is actually a NoSQL data, data storage. So typically with NoSQL storages, you, get, you, know, you don't have quite as great of an ability to query that data because it's not relational. Mobile services, by default, is based off SQL database, which is you know, super highly queryable. But, you know, can have some issues with doing, you know, data scalability, depending on how much data you have. And, you know, obviously there are solutions for both these problems, whether you're on Parse and you need to find a way to query your data, or you're on mobile services and you need a way to do SQL. One of the biggest differences, though, is what the capabilities are of the Azure platform as a whole if you ever need to go beyond the back of the service. So if today you're using something like Parse and you realize, hey, I really need a virtual machine that does X or I need to, you know, figure out how to integrate with Y. If it's not something that's specifically offered by Parse, well, you know, you kind of need to figure out how do you even do that, how do you connect into the Parse system to get your data and things like that. Whereas when you are using something like Azure Mobile Services, if you need to do these other things, you know, you basically have the full power of the Azure platform right there. So if you need to use a VM, you can create a VM and that database that is storing your data for your mobile service, it's, you know, it's a full database inside Microsoft Azure. So if you want to connect a website to that same database or, you know, you have a backend job running in a VM, you know, anything you might want to do, you know, it's, it's, it's all there and you can basically do it without having to go find some other solution somewhere else. Okay, That's cool. A- that makes a lot of sense. That's a pretty good differentiator, actually. Like, I hadn't thought of that, but that's actually very helpful if you if you do need to do more than just mobile, or well, if you the, do want to really kind of plug into the get down into the nitty gritty. Right, and, and, and you know, the, one of the things is that the whole idea of the cloud is that it should be hugely scalable. So, you know, if today you're just building your app, you don't need a lot of horsepower behind that. But then, you know, if your app gets featured in the app store, you know, you need to make sure your backend can tolerate the load. And Azure Mobile Services and pretty much everything else in Azure is, you know, super, super easy to scale. Like, I mean, easy to the point of you drag a slider from the left to the right to add more scale to your services most of the time. But, you know, certainly at some point, some people, you know, you may want to go beyond or have different capabilities that you can't get out of your mobile service out of the box. And, you know, that's that's where that situation comes in hand, where it's like, well, I can start mixing my mobile service and something I want to deploy in, whether it's the pass offering or in Azure websites. Like, you have a lot of options when and if you want to go beyond what you get out of the box. And can I run um, kind of, maybe not arbitrary code, but is there the option for me to put some some kind of code in the back end? Because I think Parse lets you do that with JavaScript. I yeah, think. so basically when you create a new mobile service in Azure, uh, you choose whether you want your mobile service to run in JavaScript or Node.js, so server-side JavaScript, or in .NET. The .NET stuff's new and it's in preview, but basically what happens specifically on the JavaScript side, when you create a, you know, a table in your mobile service or you create an endpoint, you can basically create a, uh, a server-side JavaScript, so a Node.js script that will run. And in the case of table operations, like let's say you're trying to insert data into your table, this script will run and you can do you know, data validation there, you could pull third-party services, you could send emails, basically anything you might want to do there. And either you can then you know, save the data to the database and then do stuff after that if you need to do more uh, you know, server-side logic, or you can save this out of the database and then respond. Or you know, in the case of the data doesn't pass validation, you can just reply directly to the app and say, sorry, you know, I couldn't save this, here's why. 
So you, you get that ability to do that server-side logic, and it's it's actually pretty cool. You know, there's a um, when you go to the Azure portal and you create a mobile service, uh, you can actually edit these scripts right in the portal, which is super convenient for development time when you're just trying to get things working. And then later on, you know, or you know, even right away, you have the option of where you can basically clone or you know make a Git repository of all those scripts, so you can pull down all your scripts locally and edit them locally and then push them back up. Uh, you can use mocking frameworks to test them locally, which is kind of cool. Uh, you know, so really cool options there. And then if you are more familiar with .NET, which I'm going to you know, probably make a bit of an assumption and say if you're an iOS developer, you may not be big into .NET, but you can also do .NET for your backend as well, if you want. So if you are familiar with doing C Sharp, for example, you could do the same sort of backend coding and do it in C Sharp if you want to. Or F Sharp. If you want to be uh, a hipster. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> can I run like arbitrary code? Can I reference like NPM modules and do whatever I want? Or what are the restrictions? I presumably I can't mine Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> you, you could you could probably uh, legitimately you could probably try to install something that would do it, but I'm sure uh, the operation center would probably shut you down pretty quick. But once you clone the like the Git repository of your scripts locally, you can basically install npm modules into that repository, or you can edit your packages file. And then when you push it up to your mobile service, your mobile service will basically pull down those npm modules. So there's a ton of functionality you can do there. You are going to have some restrictions as far as what you can do. Like there, there's a certain sandbox aspect to the mobile service. So I can't think of a specific example of what you could do. But if you certainly try to, for example, you know, access some location that you're not allowed to on the file system of the, the what's running your mobile service you get stopped from doing that but the, you know there's tons of stuff you can do there gotcha so kind of like heroku i'd imagine where you know you can't access the file system and what about if i wanted to kind of cache something in some temp directory am i guaranteed that it's always going to be on the same instance with each uh, request or is it going to be somewhere arbitrary you wouldn't necessarily want to cache something on the local file system. I, I'm pretty certain that you, you do have access to a temp directory, but the thing is with mobile services is that because it's at a, like, if you look at the cloud, you know, the whole, like, levels of abstraction, you look at IaaS or virtual machines at the very bottom where you have very strict control over everything, and something like back the service at the top where you don't have, you know, a strict control, but you're given a lot of stuff out of the box. Well, the thing is with mobile services is that on the back end, we're going to kind of control how many virtual machines are actually running your mobile service for you to make sure that we're, you know, able to meet basically the needs of your mobile service scale level. So you can't always be sure that you'd be hitting the same VM. But there are other services as part of Azure, like there's a couple different caching options, including one based off Redis. So if you wanted to do, you know, just strictly caching, what you'd probably want to do is from your scripting layer, you know, those Node.js scripts, store something in that cache layer and then, you know, pull it out from that same cache layer. And it's, you know, really easy to do that because there is a Node.js library or SDK for a lot of the features in Azure, including some of the cache stuff. And so all you do is you pull in this Azure node module in your scripts and you can start talking to the cache stuff really easily. The same is true if you want to start talking to like the NoSQL-based storage app part of Azure. So you can kind of mix between using the built-in really easy-to-use SQL and then the NoSQL stuff as well. So tons of capabilities, but it just kind of depends on what you want to do. So on the back end as a service, uh, or the what, what were you calling it, mobile something? Well, I think you referred to it as mobile back end of the service, but you know, mobile services is the, yeah, mobile the, services. the product name. So is there an iOS library or CocoaPod or something that you pull into your app that gives you that interface in your program? 
Yeah, so basically what you do is, like, if this is the first time you were going to check out mobile services, what I would say is, you know, go to the portal and create a new mobile service, and then you the first page you go to is this kind of quick start page, and it says, hey, what platform are you building on? And here you'd say iOS, and then you get two options. You can say, I want to connect an existing app, or I want to create a new app. And all of the platforms that we have SDKs for, they come with kind of a templated to-do list application. So if this is your first time playing around with it, you can kind of download this template app and see how things are working. But essentially, if you go to the other options where it's, I've already got an app, it's going to say, okay, download this iOS framework and drop it into your iOS application in the frameworks folder. And then you can start basically using the Azure SDK from inside your iOS app. And it's all very, you know, Objective-C friendly. So it doesn't look like some weird, not Objective-C Cocoa library. It's, you know, it's kind of specific to the platform. Is there a CocoaPod, or do I need to do the draggy, droppy thing? Uh, I don't think there's a CocoaPod yet. I don't think we've at least one, but let me... Uh, there may... I like uh, that term, draggy, droppy. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it's it's tricky when it's... From what I understand... or I'm, Actually, you know what? I think I might be wrong, but but I always kind of assumed that CocoaPods are hard to do when it's closed source, because CocoaPods you know, wants to just be source code that you compile in rather than static libraries? Well, that's, that's actually a great thing to bring up because the actual the SDKs for mobile services are completely open source. So, oh, awesome. Uh, one, one of the issues that I had uh, a while back, I was working on an application, and we hadn't updated the iOS SDK that you get when you pull down the framework to be 64-bit compatible. So I literally just went over, pulled down the SDK myself, and recompiled it with 64-bit, and I was, you know, ready to go. Obviously, that's been fixed by now, but yeah, all of the client-side stuff, it's completely open source, so, you know, you see an issue, you want to make a pull request, it's all there in GitHub. This is awesome. I'm looking on the website, and even the Azure website is on GitHub, and people have been contributing patches to the documentation for the, the website. Yep, we've, we've been trying to move a lot more stuff towards this very open model where, A, you know, if you see an issue with documentation, you can proactively... Uh, make a fix or, you know, let us know and we'll obviously fix it. But yeah, same thing with the SDKs and even, even the quick start applications themselves are, they're all on GitHub. So, you know, it's all really easy to see how things are working and where they're at. That is great. Microsoft has changed. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, we're trying to work for everyone and be kind of friendly to everyone. It's kind of interesting and I'm, I'm going to take this tangent a little bit that Microsoft has kind of been the... And, and I think the, the open source community has done this a little bit, where they made him kind of the poster child of being anti-open source and things like that. And I don't know how true it was in the past, because I really wasn't involved enough or had to fight any of the battles, I guess, that any of them had to fight. But these days, I've talked to a few people over in Microsoft, like Scott Hanselman and you know a handful of other Microsoft engineers, and it really does feel like they are moving much more toward embracing the community and saying, hey... You know, we've got products that will make your life easier, and we've got ideas that we are opening up to the community at large. And they don't have to have that tight control. I mean, they do on some things, you know, like the platforms, Windows, and whatever, but they don't have that tight control over some of these solutions where they really are solutions and not platforms or programs. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's pretty much the common perception now. And I'm relatively new to Microsoft, at least working here. I've been doing either Microsoft-related developments or not. I mean, I was I did .NET for a good five years before I went over and started doing iOS and Android development. So I've been familiar with Microsoft, and it's really cool to see and understand that you know Microsoft knows that if we really want to continue to thrive, we really need to be a open, be honest, but 
you know, see friendly to kind of everyone and not just, you know, sit behind our closed walls and kind of push out something once every few years and assume that people are going to be happy with it. Like we've had to become a much more agile company. I think that's, that's really what we're seeing now as we see, you know, like, especially on the Azure side, you know, weekly, if not biweekly, you know, releases of new features and capabilities and, you know, everything working cross platform. It's, it's been a really awesome thing to be a part of that. And, you know, you talk about the open source stuff and you mentioned talking with Scott Hanselman and it's people like him and, you know, Scott got through who've really pushed really so hard over the past few years about getting stuff like the .NET framework, for example, just open source so that, you know, people can understand how it works. And it's not just, you know, this thing that they use and don't really understand what's going on. That's very cool. It's been it's been really cool to see that happen, actually, because I do think, you know, historically, Microsoft were very not into open source, but it is really cool to see what the goo and people like that have been doing to, to change things. I think it, I remember this, the, f- the first time I saw some, I thought that it was really, things were really becoming different was when Microsoft started contributing to jQuery or started including jQuery and so, something like that. There was like a kind of a watershed moment. I could be pulling this just out of thin air, but I, th- I could have swore I saw at one point that we were one of the biggest contributors to jQuery. That, that could be totally wrong, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's stuff like that where, you know, we're really trying to make things better. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is, is that uh, companies like Google and Microsoft have really kind of figured out that the interconnectivity of the web and these sorts of technologies and, uh, you know, the programmer communities as a whole are things that they really need to be involved in in order to be viable companies in the future. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking them for being, you know, kind of profit-seeking or thinking forward that way. We all benefit from that. It's really, really cool to see it in the community and see all of this stuff really come out and open up. And they benefit from it, and we benefit from it, and, and that's the way that it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's funny, like I actually ran into something yesterday where something that I was using that was formerly free was no longer free. And it, it made me realize that, you know, that, that's absolutely true. Like at the end of the day, you know, Google, Microsoft, Apple, we're, we're all, you know, they're all big companies. And as, as part of their job, you know, you know, part of their responsibility, it is to make money. And, you know, that, that may not be the number one goal all the time, but it's part of the job. And at the end of the day, you know, the stuff, it still drives innovation and, you know, new stuff coming out. And, you know, if basically, you know, if the companies aren't making money, they can't afford to continue to innovate and make, you know, new new stuff. Yep. Okay, so I want to get back to talking about dorky stuff. Well, I guess we're still talking about dorky stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a couple of times you kind of touched on relational versus NoSQL. And I think kind of, you know, Maybe Azure is a little bit unusual in that it has the option of doing SQL. For, I mean, most of these high-level BAS backend as a service things normally are using like Mongo or something, something okay. like that. Do I have an option if I don't want to f- think about SQL? If let's say I'm someone who cut their teeth on HTML and CSS, I know some JavaScript and now I've learned some iOS, but I've never written a SQL statement in my life, or, or I've never even used like an ORM before. What are my options? Okay, so, well, first of all, uh, so let's say you're building an iOS app. You're, not, you're never really te- technically writing a SQL query. Like, you're using an Objective-C library that has, you know, stuff like insert this object, pull this data down, uh, and you'll do stuff like, you, like, if you wanted to do a where, like a, a read, and you say where, you create an NS predicate object, and you pass that into your mobile service. Behind the scenes, that gets changed into an OData filter, and then on the mobile service side, even more so behind the scenes, that gets changed into a SQL query. So you don't ever actually have to write your own SQL. Now, you have the option to actually execute on that scripting layer uh, your own custom SQL or start procedures 
if you want to. If you do want to go move away from using SQL, because that's an option too, from the Node or the JavaScript backend side, what you do is there's that Azure module I mentioned earlier that you can use to access other areas of Azure, and you could just pull that in and then use that to talk to table storage. And to be completely honest with you, table storage is the, the kind of the the primary NoSQL storage system inside Azure. It's the one that's been around and been worked on the most. There's also options to do Mongo, but it's a little bit easier to talk to table storage. But that's actually one of the recommendations I make is if you're going to be building something really big on top of mobile services and you know you have data that you don't need that relational capability, use the Azure module and dump it into NoSQL because it's going to you know NoSQL is going to cost less than SQL does at the end of the day. That's just a that's a truth no matter what cloud platform you're working with. So if you don't need the scale or the query ability that you get with SQL. I would certainly recommend you know looking at putting stuff into like table storage, and it's not it's not very complicated. It's not as turnkey and as easy as that. You know, just from the SDK, just calling insert and just it just goes right to the database if you want it to. But it's not a terrible amount of work either. Okay, and presumably if I'm using this NoSQL table storage, then I don't have to think so hard about things like schema migrations or like figuring out what my entity relationship model is and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. And at the end of the day, you know, mobile services doesn't act as an ORM. So you can use the scripting layer to kind of actually sort of make it act like an ORM, but it doesn't do it out of, out of the box. So it's not going to, you know, do ORM type features. Like if, if you put a foreign key in your database, it's not going to make sure that when you pull this record, it pulls all the associating records with it. That's something you kind of have to manually do. So in that regard, mobile services, you know, doesn't just do that, so to speak. You mentioned NS Predicate. Is there any kind of magical thing that makes the Azure storage look like core data or any kind of syncing functionality so, or something like that? Yeah, great question. So today there's no out-of-the-box plugins uh, with core data. We are actually previewing right now uh, offline capability. So essentially at, at, uh, at our big build conference uh, back in April, we released a preview of the .NET library's offline feature, and just recently we released a preview of the iOS offline. And that actually communicates by default with just a SQLite data store on your iOS app. Now, the nice thing about that is it's extensible, so if you wanted to change it over to core data, you could. It's just not done right now out of the box. And that's something that we're looking at for the future. It's just we kind of wanted to get it to this base place where to work across all the platforms that mobile services works with in a similar way before we kind of look at some of the more advanced stuff like plugging into core data on iOS where we couldn't do that same sort of thing on any other platform. So I'm looking at the the Azure website, and it says iOS, Android, Windows, HTML5. It also does the broadcast push stuff, but it has social integration. Yeah, so one of the cool things uh, you get with mobile services is you can add authentication to your apps really easily with Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Microsoft. And essentially what you do is, you know, I've created my mobile service, and I'm in the mobile service in the portal. There's an identity tab, and you go in there, and... That's where you enter, you know, it's usually it's two pieces of information, like an app ID and an app secret or something like that. And whatever one of those providers you want to use, you can go in and, you know, create an app in their developer portal so you get that ID and that secret. Uh, when you put that into your mobile service, from your client application, you can then say, hey, I want the user to authenticate and, you know, I want them to log in with Facebook or Twitter. Uh, in the case of iOS, where there are native libraries to log in with Facebook and Twitter, you can also use those and then talk to your mobile service. But basically what that gives you is, from the mobile service side, 
A, you could automatically get some basic information about the user from the provider. So, like, what is their username? What's their full name? What's the, you know, the link to their profile or their photo on, like, Facebook, etc. But then you can also, you know, relatively easy, you can also, provided you've requested the right permissions, you can then talk back to those providers and say, you know, hey, I want to tweet on this user's behalf or I want to, you know, get their friends list. And, you know, that, that all gets into what do the provider's APIs expose and what permissions have you requested? But it's pretty easy to kind of connect those pieces. And as far as adding the authentication goes, it's super easy because it's all built into the SDK. So it's literally, you know, you, you call essentially one line of code and it'll pop open a login window for you. And then your users are authenticated and that gives you options to actually secure the data that's in your mobile service as well. So once you have an authenticated user, you can actually start saving data so it's tied to that user and make sure that that's the only user that can then see that data. So there's also, you know, security and authentication or an authorization rather that's also built into mobile services. So it's not just, you know, sort of like it's not it's not just a dumb data store, so to speak. So one of the things that comes to mind when I think of, you know, .NET, Microsoft and iOS is Xamarin. Is there any particular special magic integration between Xamarin and Azure or is it is it just the same as using a regular iOS app? Uh, so it's 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 a little bit different because of how Xamarin works. So one of the things I mentioned before was when you go to that Quick Start page and you can see you know all of the the platforms and then you can get the Quick Start project or you can get info on how to connect it. So Xamarin's included in there and you know Xamarin iOS and Xamarin Android. We've actually I mean Xamarin's done a lot of work lately, so it's a lot easier to basically build a an application for iOS and for Android and for you know Windows Phone, Windows Store that uses the same mobile services library and you know the same code base to really talk to your mobile service. The only area that's still kind of platform specific is that popping open that login that that login view. And that's just because of how each platform deals with the web views a little bit differently. But there's you know full connectivity into the Xamarin stuff. And one of the things I mentioned earlier was how, you know, in the case of iOS, the live the, the mobile services SDK, you know, it looks like an Objective C library. It, it's using kind of the proper syntax and the proper naming and stuff like that. Uh, well, the same thing's true if you look at, you know, the Xamarin one or the Android one. You know, they're using the proper syntax. So if you're used to developing in .NET for Xamarin, you're going to feel comfortable with the library. That's a really big thing, I think. I really don't like it when I get a third-party SDK in, in any language and it doesn't really follow the conventions of the platform. And there are some really bad examples in Objective-C. Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, one of the things we did when we were building, you know, well, all of the client SDKs for mobile services, but the iOS one in specific, is we actually, you know, had a bunch of iOS developers kind of, you know, in a group that would kind of review the stuff with us and just tell us when, you know, what we were doing was, you know, oh, that's totally, that totally doesn't make sense. I would never write that as an Objective-C developer. So to make sure it didn't feel like this just unnatural, unholy thing when you started using it. Worst example I can think of for that that I've ever done, used is the original uh, Ruby SDK for Amazon Web Services was awful. It was like horrible. It was like badly written Java in, in Ruby. It was, <laughs> oh man, it's a lot better now. So one other thing that I saw on the the website there was single sign-on. Yeah, so I don't think that's really working on the iOS side of things right now. We're still working on the authentication side there. I think that's more so a feature right now of what we can do with the Windows side and just because of what's capable with the Windows authentication. So the closest thing to, you know, single sign-on right now on the iOS side is you can use the built-in Facebook and Twitter authentication stuff to uh, authorize your users that way. But that's really the closest thing when it comes to the iOS side of things. Now, do you actually help manage that single sign-on stuff with Facebook or Twitter or whatever? 
Yeah, so basically what would happen is uh, it's kind of similar to what I explained before. Like, you know, you'd go into Facebook or Twitter and you create the app in their developer center so that you can then connect from your, your iOS app. And then once your user authenticates, use, you know, using the, their SDK, so, you know, you're, use, you're basically you're never going through your mobile service to do authentication in that case. Then in the code behind, you can send the token and the secret you get from, you know, wow. Facebook or Twitter to your mobile service. And your mobile, behind the scenes, your mobile service will then, you know, authenticate those, make sure they're legit, and then basically give you a user ID and a token that corresponds to your mobile service so that then your request to your mobile service still show up as authenticated, even though you never really authenticated with your mobile service. Well, that makes sense. If I didn't want to use Facebook or Twitter for authentication, I just want to say, like, you know, I want just the bog standard regular sign up with a give me your username and password. Yep. Well, so it's it's not it's not turnkey right now to do that kind of custom authentication, but I've done that a bunch, and I've got some guides on the internet that basically, you know, I've actually got an iOS app or a, a sample that you could basically take that code, change the connection string to point to your mobile service, and it would basically handle the custom authentication for you. So it's a little more work, but using those those, those server-side scripts than how you can do that server-side logic, it's pretty easy to accomplish, especially because it's, you know, we already have the code out there, so all you really need to do is just drop it into your mobile service and you're doing custom auth. I'm kind of curious, what is the feature that is most requested that you don't currently have? Well, I would have definitely, I would have absolutely said offline, you know, up until we released the preview a little, little while ago, because that was generally, you know, the number one, what does it do for synchronizing? What does it do for offline, et cetera? But, you know, that's something that we're, as I said, it's in preview, so we're tackling that right now. I'd have to think about what it would be beyond that. I guess one of the things that a lot of people want to see is a little bit more of an enhanced user functionality. Because you look at some of the other backend service providers, and there's a there's a stronger concept of user for Azure Mobile Services. Once your user is authenticated, you can kind of create this user concept but it's not core to all the functionality of mobile services, which is good and bad. You know, sometimes if you don't need, you know, the same user concept, having it there, which you're kind of forced to on some of the other providers, it seems kind of weird. But when you do want it, I think, you know, having it kind of built in is, is really, really handy. So I, I think that's probably one of the bigger requests. That and I guess actually just out of the box, you know, connectivity into NoSQL data storage for stuff you want to store in NoSQL versus SQL. Like I said before, you can you can do it without too much trouble from the server side scripting language. Like start connecting to uh, NoSQL instead of SQL. It's just not as easy as the SQL stuff is today. I know that I'm comparing apples with oranges, but one of the things that's nice about Heroku for someone who's getting started and doesn't want to think about back-endy stuff is the kind of the marketplace or the, I don't know what the name for it actually is, where I can go and say, sure, I want to send email. Yes, I would like to get logging. Yes, I would like whatever else. Is there kind of an equivalent in Azure where I can kind of, where third-party providers have kind of done the integration for you so you don't have to? Yep, absolutely. So there's something called the Azure Store, and essentially, you know, it's very similar. There's a lot of these different things you can, uh, you know, basically purchase. And so, for example, you mentioned email. Well, uh, SendGrid is a pretty uh, well-known email or a company that will basically handle email for you. So what you can do is, you know, let's say you've got your mobile service, and then you go into the Azure Store and you sign up for SendGrid. And then from your mobile service, you can, you know, using a SendGrid has their own module you can use in your server-side scripts. You can use that server-side, that SendGrid module to send e 
emails using SendGrid. And one of the cool things about that is a lot of the different things in the Azure Store has like a free tier. So, for example, with SendGrid, you have there's a free tier that lets you send like 20,000 emails a month from your mobile service or from Azure for free. So, if you're developing, you're playing around, you don't have to worry about paying anything. And there's other ones like uh, there's connectivity with Pusher, which is does like WebSocket style communication. So, you know, real time messages down to your iOS app that's not using push notifications, which is pretty cool. There's other ones like, uh, so, you know, we mentioned that, you know, there's there's only four off providers right now, or really, there's the four social off providers I mentioned, then you can also do Azure Active Directory, and then the custom off. There's a company called Off Zero that lets you plug into a bunch of other off providers, and you can use them from your mobile service if you want to. You know, there's a number of other ones as well, so tons of different stuff you can do there, and it really can enhance just some of the capabilities you can do from your, your mobile service backend to make it just, you know, crazy how many things you could do. I have multiple MongoDB options if I wanted to use MongoDB. Uh, yeah, I believe that is correct. One of them starts at $400 a month. <laughs> That's a lot of Mongo. That is a lot of Mongo. Why? So this is like the official, you know, MongoDB, the company that used to be whatever they were called before they rebranded themselves. Ten, ten gen. Thank you. So it's a highly available free node MongoDB replica set running MongoDB Enterprise. So I guess that's why it costs four hundred dollars a month. That Enterprise. is a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> crazy. But there's also a cheaper one from MongoLab. So yeah, and the the cool thing about Azure, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is you know you've got stuff like this where it's hey, you know, here's this value out of the box. All you have to do is say, yeah, I want that, and it's going to be turned on and managed for you. You know, if you want something else, you know, you could host your own MongoDB inside of Azure relatively easily. But, you know, then, of course, if you want it clustered and stuff like that, it becomes more work on your part. So it's, you know, it's that, is my time worth the money, or do I have the know-how yeah, to absolutely. do it, or do I just want to pay someone else to do it for me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I. it's kind of funny, because I... You know, my mentality is I really want to get my hands dirty and play with all this stuff and stand up my own and all that fun stuff. And I, and I do that because it's enjoyable. But I have friends who aren't that technical and who are trying to run a startup and they want to spend every single second of, of their development energy building their product, not figuring out how to configure a replica set for MongoDB or whatever. So for them, like $400 a month or $50 a month or whatever is a very, very good deal because it means that they can focus on actually building value rather than configuring uh, servers. Right? So I guess that's the all of this abstract backend as a service stuff is that's the reason you you would do it, I suppose. Yeah, and you know, you know that that's the beauty of the cloud and kind of the different levels is you know if you have the know how, the time, and the desire, you can go and do everything on VMs and you know basically build your own world. But if you have the money and you want to get done quick, you can buy it out of the box. It is a really compelling differentiator for me for, for Azure is that option of like you have a pretty an incremental transition path from like really abstract backend as a service down all the way to the metal without having to figure out like if I was on, let's say I'm writing the next Instagram and I start off on PARS or whatever else. Once I hit a certain amount of crazy scale, I'm going to want to drop to something like Heroku, maybe. I don't want to manage my own servers, but I want to drop to Heroku. And that transition, I think, would be pretty painful. And then if I want to drop down again into just straight EC2 or even, you know, managing my own servers, then that's not a, tr a trivial thing to do when um, when you're kind of in a, a closed system. So it is an interesting, it's an interesting advantage. Yeah, and, and the, the really cool thing about, you know, that, that kind of adds to that is that, 
it's not like you have to kind of go, all right, I need to go from, you know, system A to system B, and I have to do it in one fell swoop because I can't talk between the two. Like, if you're using mobile services today, for example, and you want to start moving down over to pass because, A, at the end of the day, pass will end up being cheaper, but there's a lot more work involved because you have to write all your own services and all of that architecture. You know, you can move it over piecemeal, like just start moving over some of the functionality, and then, you know, once you're finally off of, you know, the old stuff, you don't have to do it all in one go. You can kind of do it slowly or as fast as you want. All right. Well, it's uh, it's five minutes till. I know some folks want to go get to the events around WWDC or have other things going on. So let's go ahead and get to the picks. Pete, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. My first pick is, I don't know if anyone's already picked this, is the 3.0 release of App Code. So this is from the guys who make IntelliJ and ReSharper. So they make a Objective-C IDE called App Code. Uh, I think I picked it in a very early episode, but they just they re- reasonably recently did a, a 3.0 release, uh, which is a big upgrade. The, the biggest thing that I'm excited about is actually the interface designer is in the IDE now, so you do not need to run Xcode to do your ID your UI stuff. The problem I always had with App Code was I would end up like back in Xcode to do the UI, and then I'd forget to go back to App Code, and then I'd be like. 10 minutes later, be like, ah, I'm back in Xcode again. So it looks really cool. It also has an uh, interesting little thing it has built. It has a, a reveal plugin so that you can use it with reveal, which is this cool app from some smart guys in Australia that lets you kind of inspect the running state of your UI, your native iOS UI. So it's very cool. Uh, my next pick is not topical because this podcast won't be out right now but um so today is the second day of wwdc and the big announcement from my mind was swift this new programming language from apple apparently it's a bit like dylan if you know what dylan is which uh, i don't uh, well i i know what it is but i haven't i know of the name but i don't know what the hell that language is anyway uh, it looks like a cool language the thing that i'm most excited about is it's got lots of functional aspects and i've been really getting into functional programming i think ios developers are going to start to learn how to do functional stuff better a good source for that is um, my third pick which is a coursera course on functional reactive programming so this is kind of like uh, we we talked about this in previous episodes with like reactive coco but this coursera course is really good at talking about the fundamentals of kind of functional programming and different ways that data can flow through your application so that's my third pick and then my last pick is a beer because i like picking beer i'm going to pick the number four from Upright Brewing in Portland. It's one of my f- the best beers I've ever had, I think, so far in my life. It's a wheat saison table beer. So it's pretty low alcohol, probably like 4%, 5%, something like that. Uh, but very, very tasty, very clean, super yummy. If you can get hold of Upright 4, then you should do so. And that's my picks. Very nice. Andrew, what are your picks? I'm going to counter Pete's picks with just one. My pick is the developer forums on Apple's website. Maybe, maybe these have been picked before, but I haven't actually visited them frequently recently. But right now, they've added a board for Swift, and it's already sort of becoming the best place, I think, to discuss the language. And Apple engineers are participating there, so there's a lot of information about the details of Swift and problems people are running into and things that they're even some stuff that they're planning for the future of the language. Uh, but of course, developer forums have all kinds of content around iOS and Mac development, and I think the coolest thing about them is that you're quite likely to get replies from Apple engineers. So that's my pick. Awesome. All right, I've I've just got one pick, and that is... Well, I've got two picks. I'll go back. 
So one pick, I've picked it on the show before, I'm pretty sure, but it's something that really just made a huge difference for me. I was talking to my mastermind group yesterday, and you know, I was telling them that I was having trouble focusing, and so we discussed like Pomodoros and stuff, and I went back and started using Focus at Will again. And so Focus at Will is focusatwill.com. I actually have a paid account, so I can use it as much as I want. And I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't really, you know, they have an explanation of why the music you know, helps you focus while you're trying to get work done. And basically, it's the tempos and the types of sounds and stuff. Anyway, it's, it's pretty awesome, so focus at will. And then the other one, and I'm going to admit to being kind of a ball baby, I guess, but I haven't read or listened to books very often that made me cry, and this one did. Um, it's called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Dr. Meg Meeker. Basically, what it's about, it's about being a good dad to your daughters. And, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot of stuff in there where she, uh, you know, cites statistics and studies that are kind of frightening when you think about, you know, that your kids are growing up in a world that has these issues. But at the same time, then she talks to you about how to counter some of those influences on your kids and, you know, just the ways to handle some of those things and how to have a good relationship with your daughter and some of the things that she needs from you. So um, if you're a dad and you have little girls, then uh, I can't recommend that book highly enough. Chris, what are your picks? All right, so... I'll have to go back and just kind of spread some stuff I meant to mention earlier, but I'll just I'll use this as picks. So first of all, uh, you can check out the Ezra homepage as well as signing up for a free trial. Uh, Mobile Service has a free tier, but if you try the free trial, you kind of get access to everything in Azure. Uh, you can just go to azure.com, A-Z-U-R-E.com, and get there. Uh, if you go to azure.microsoft.com slash iOS, that's kind of the iOS landing page. So if you're building iOS apps, here's what Azure can do for you. It's also got a really cool video that the Vesper guys, Brent Simmons and uh, Gruber did, talking about how they use mobile services inside of Vesper. And then the last one, I think somebody mentioned I picked a beer earlier, so I'll pick a beer too. Uh, I really love New Holland uh, Brewing Company, which is from Michigan's beer called Dragon's Milk. It's, uh, it was the first bourbon barrel beer I ever had, and it's delicious. Nice pick. I think we've had that beer picked before. It must be, uh, must but be it's good. a very, very good beer. Yeah. yeah, but how do you milk a dragon? Well, it's pretty complicated, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming, Chris. Really yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. And I think yeah, there's thanks. really some exciting stuff that, you know, lowers the impedance to getting started with back-end iOS stuff. So it's exciting. Great. Yeah, and thanks again for having me, guys. I really appreciate the, the time to talk with you. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Well, go check out Microsoft Azure, and we will catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.